Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. This episode of the podcast features a plenary lecture on biblical and theological realities that guide those who are Christians as they consider dying and death. The address was given by New Testament professor D.A. Carson at our 26th annual summer conference, which was held in 2019. In this excellent lecture, Dr. Carson highlights eight tenets of Christianity that help to orient our thinking. All of the audio from that conference, which was titled Taking Care, Perspectives for the End of Life, has just been made available to CBHD members as part of their premium content access. In addition to CBHD's premium content archives, which include audio and select video from nearly 800 conference sessions from 1994 to 2019, CBHD membership benefits also include a one-year print subscription to Ethics and Medicine, an international journal of bioethics, special reports examining controversial or emerging issues, and complete access to the digital archive of our quarterly publication, Dignitas. Members also receive a discount to our annual summer conference, as well as discounted rates on a number of professional journals and magazines relevant to bioethics. Standard membership is $75 a year, and student membership is only $40 a year. To become a member, visit cbhd.org slash subscribe or email membership at cbhd.org. That's cbhd.org slash subscribe or membership at cbhd.org. I mentioned that this episode features a plenary lecture recorded at our 2019 summer conference. Our 2021 conference is coming up next month. It will be held online June 24 through 26. Technology, best practices, and our own skill and comfort levels have greatly improved since last summer's conference when we were all relatively new to pandemic life. For this year, we're using a different delivery platform, and we have a full conference slate that includes nine plenary speakers, 29 parallel paper presentations, and six professional workshops. The conference will focus on understanding the human body through a theological lens, disability and issues of identity in a bioethical context, the goals of medicine with respect to disease, the biological and technological merging of the human and non-human, and more. The plenary speakers are Johnny Erickson Tata, founder of Johnny and Friends, Beth Felker-Jones, who's been a member of Wheaton College's theology faculty since 2008 and who this summer is moving to Northern Seminary, Kimball Cornu, assistant professor of healthcare ethics and assistant professor of medicine at St. Louis University, Donna Harrison, the executive director of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or APLOG, Peter Smith, associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago, Jeffrey Bishop, who's professor of philosophy and professor of theological studies at St. Louis University, and who you'll hear quoted later in this episode of the podcast. Christopher Ralston, a researcher, writer, and speaker who draws on his own experience as a person with a physical disability and whose work centers around issues at the intersection of disability, bioethics, philosophy, and theology. Myself, and Carter Sneed, professor of law and director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame, and author of the recently published and truly outstanding book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. The dates for the conference are June 24 through 26, and it will be presented online. I do hope you'll plan to join us for this important conference. For more information about our Bioethics and the Body Conference, 
And to register, visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. And now, here's D.A. Carson, Ph.D., Emeritus Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, from our 2019 Summer Conference with an address entitled, Biblical and Theological Givens for Responsible Christian Thinking About Death. I am grateful to Dr. Paige Cunningham and the authorities of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity for inviting me to address you in this way. And thank you in advance for listening patiently to someone with no medical training. Of course, for those of us who are Christ followers, we will want to be reminded of some of the things the Lord Jesus and his apostles say on these matters. And perhaps I can help a little on that front by thinking out loud as we wend our way through some biblical texts and themes. Let me begin with some divergent frames of reference. A few years ago, I was asked to appear on a television documentary about Jesus. I soon discovered I was the token evangelical. I was on the set for the better part of three days, responding on camera now and then to this and that. During that time, I think I managed to speak to everyone on the crew, about 30 people, sound people, lighting people, and so on. Not one knew the Bible has two testaments. Not one had heard of, say, Abraham. Well, there was one exception. The woman who was slated to interview me reassured me by telling me she had been studying the Bible for about six weeks in preparation for this shooting, and she felt she had a pretty good handle on it now. Boy, was I impressed. <laughs> the most interesting conversation I had was with the chauffeur who drove me from the airport to the set. Relax, I normally do not get driven by chauffeurs. Ted's never did that for me. <laughs> Neither does TGC. But hey, television documentaries apparently go the extra mile, even for token evangelicals. What can I say? On this occasion, I could see that my chauffeur was more than a little morose, so I asked him if everything was all right. He quietly told me that his 30-something daughter, his only child, had died in a road accident a few weeks earlier. She had been married less than a year. Her SUV hit some ice, the vehicle skidded and flipped. She was killed instantly. I told her how sorry I was and asked if he wanted to talk about it or be left in peace. Well, he opened up and talked for a long time. Eventually, I asked him if it would change his perception of his daughter's death if he were certain that there is life after death. He exclaimed, Oh, I know just what you mean. My daughter had a lovely garden, and I'm sure she'd like to come by to come back as a butterfly in it. Zing! Different planets. Different worldviews. And now you can see why I've told you the story. It is exceedingly difficult to make much headway on agreed stances on death and dying when there are such divergent opinions as to the nature of human beings. Divergent opinions as to life after death, the nature of good and evil, the existence and perhaps the attributes of God, and much more. My erstwhile chauffeur was not a Hindu. His understanding of reincarnation, it transpired, was the result of nothing more than a smorgasbord approach to religious belief, 
organizing eclectic bits of unintegrated and optimistic religious preference. Pretty common in North America, as far as I can see. Contrast that with the way one looks on death if one is a Muslim. A strictly merit-based system. Or some brand of traditional animist, or increasingly commonly, a disciplined philosophical naturalist. In the latter case, proponents can be divided into two camps that are not mutually exclusive. The larger of these two camps understands human beings to be exclusively material, so that death brings dissolution and only dissolution, not some kind of release and continuity. This is explicit in the writings of the so-called new atheists. This has an immediate bearing on how we construct any theory about human dignity. Some thinkers going so far as to argue that an intelligent chimpanzee carries more dignity and therefore more significance than an infant human being with severe mental disability. And inevitably that shapes how we will think about abortion at one end and euthanasia at the other. The smaller camp of philosophical naturalists, represented by someone like Ray Kurzweil, is convinced that the human mind and with it every dimension of thought, emotion, and self-consciousness will one day be replicated by AI, by artificial intelligence, making it possible, nay, they would say inevitable, that one day life beyond physical dissolution will be possible by the wholesale transfer of data stored in the synapses of the brain to the extracorporeal digital domain. In this sense, eternal life is possible, as long as you have an excellent backup electrical system. <laughs> but of course, such eternal life needs no good, no God, no rigorous metaphysical distinction between good and evil, let alone redemption and forgiveness. Once again, such a worldview will shape in countless ways how we think about death, whether our own or that of our patients. Those of us who are Christians, of course, have our own biblically shaped frame of reference, and I'll say more about that in a few minutes. That's what I've been asked to do. But many of us, regardless of our professed theological commitments, quietly adopt stances that reflect one school of thought or another in the broader culture. For example, Outside the world of specialists in geriatric medicine, death has become something close to a taboo subject. I think we're about to overlap. Over the last 40 years, my wife and I have hosted an endless string of students around our table. Literally thousands. Usually we have fostered robust discussion. If I ask what they think of a recent film, or the SCOTUS decision on gay marriage, Everyone has an opinion, eagerly defended. But if I say, I'd like to tell you how my dad died, the silence thunders. The embarrassment is palpable. What, sign, what kind of gaucherie has this professor led us into? Three or four centuries ago, of course, the Puritans and their heirs, having picked up the medieval tradition, talked a lot about death, pondering what it means to die well. I know the Puritan tradition a little better than the Catholic tradition, but especially in an age when there were few analgesics, they prayed earnestly that they would not, in their dying suffering, say or do anything that brought disgrace on the Savior. 
but would die in a way that would adorn the gospel. That was their controlling, big-picture ideal. That's what it meant to die well. Today, where the expression is still used, it most likely means something like to die painlessly, to die antiseptically. Moreover, the Puritans taught believers in their congregations to die well. They saw more death close up than most ordinary folk do today. Even a mere 170 years or so ago, virtually every family lost a considerable percentage of their children to the ravages of child diseases and uncontrolled infections. And the deaths were not sanitized as they commonly are today. My grandfather died 100 years ago, 1919, a late outcome of World War I. There was no attending physician to pronounce him dead. There was no embalming. The body was laid in a cheap casket that was then placed on the table in the little kitchen. Four husky friends carried him out to the burial plot. Nothing was hidden. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that theirs was a better way. I am merely saying that we have been swept along by the sanitized forms of death rituals that domesticate the subject, rituals that make it much more difficult to talk about death and immortality, about this world and the next, than it is in the pages of the New Testament. Without thinking much about it, many of us watch a friend dying in considerable pain, and when they slip away, we piously avow that it is better this way, for their suffering is over. And thus we completely shut out the words of the Master in Luke 16, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Or again, Hebrew 9.27 reminds us people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Is it always so transparently obvious that the deceased are now at rest or in a better place, to use the contemporary chart? To what extent are we, however unwittingly, merely parroting some of the favorite opinions of the age? About 50 years ago, the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act was passed, and all 50 states adopted this model legislation for their own organ donation structures. Shortly thereafter, in his seminal book, The Patient as Person, Paul Ramsey worried that we were about to become a nation of card-carrying pre-cadavers. It's a wonderful expression. After all, only recently had medicine sanctioned the mutilation of a living person to provide, say, a kidney for an ill relative who needed one. The axiom, first of all, do no harm, had become de facto. First of all, you may do harm to a willing and living organ donor, provided it's for the good of another. Which, adequately policed, may call up images of loving self-sacrifice, inadequately policed may issue in medical barbarism. In other words, such actions may be morally justified, but one thing leads to another. The U.S. operates its organ donor schemes under an opt-in approach. The potential donor has to agree in writing to donate his or her organs at death. By contrast, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain adopted an opt-out approach. Everyone at death automatically becomes an organ donor if the medical authorities think they can use any of the parts, unless the individual has specifically opted out. The opt-out approach has, of course, been proposed in the U.S. As Aaron Cariati puts it, quote, this is not a sign of moral progress. 
In the last analysis, voluntarily opting in seems more consonant with the integrity of man's bodily life and the logic of organ donation. In an opt-out system, organs remain always and only gifts to be freely given, not parts to be habitually taken. There is a real danger that we will increasingly view the human body as a collection of useful, or in some cases, not so useful parts. Small wonder that bioethicist Jeffrey Bishop, in his recent book, The Anticipatory Corpse, goes so far as to argue that modern technological medicine, not least in its care for the dying, quote, increasingly views the sick human body as though it were already dead. In any case, we are not immune from the pressure of these developments. Permit me to tell two more stories. This is my equivalent to case studies. <laughs> Some years ago, a woman I know fell seriously ill with uh, recurrent cancer. She was a well-known leader, and in consequence, a special day of prayer was called for her. Let's call her Mary. As the day wore on, the prayers for Mary became more intense. Lord, you promised that if two or three believers be agreed in what they ask for, you will grant it, and there are close to 300 of us here. In Jesus' name, we claim the healing of our sister. When it was my wife's turn, who was at this stage herself already a cancer survivor, just barely. She prayed in a rather subdued voice, Lord, we do so much want to see Mary's life extended. We ask you to heal her. But if not, teach her to die well. Enable her to leave a marvelous gospel legacy for her husband and children. And more of the same. We later learned that some of Mary's relatives felt so betrayed by my wife's prayer that among themselves they rather hoped for my wife's cancer to return and teach her to concoct somewhat more sensitive prayers. I would add that during this period, Mary's church was marvelously supportive, providing meals, help with cleaning the house, tidying the property, someone to be with Mary when the family obviously needed sleep and so forth. One visitor or another would ask Mary how she was doing, and most likely she would reply, not very well. The visitor would squeeze her hand and say, it's all right, Mary, we're praying for you. We have faith that God will heal you. About two months later, one month before Mary died, her husband rang me and said, Don, I've got to talk with you. I've got to talk with you now. I didn't know them really well. But I said I'd be right over, and he immediately protested that he didn't want to meet me at the house because he didn't want his wife to listen in. So off we went to a coffee shop. It turned out that what he wanted was permission to let Mary go. With all the pressure from well-meaning Christians and their prayers, it seemed to both him and Mary that to talk about impending death was akin to letting down the side. Transparently, Mary was dying, but she was not permitted, let alone encouraged, to admit it. In consequence, there was no joyful recitation of to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. There was no reading of 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, because that presupposes death. No meditation on 1 Peter 1 or on Revelation 21 and 22. In short, the social pressure from well-meaning Christians was robbing Mary and her husband of gospel comforts. One more modest story of how a sort of folklorist Christianity may displace well-informed faith. 
Bob, we'll call him, had suffered from asthma all his life and more recently from a nasty array of pulmonary complications. A few hours before he died, as he fought for breath, despite the supply of oxygen, one of his relatives asked him what he wanted to do first when he got to heaven. He pulled away the face mask, the better to articulate his answer, and said, Take a deep breath. His reply was a mixture of courage, whimsy, humor, anticipation, and ignorance. One part of my critical brain was asking, doesn't he know that bodily resurrection, existence, awaits the return of Christ? That it begins only after Jesus has returned? That what we experience first at death is what Christians have long called the intermediate state? So what should the answer have been? Well, that's my introduction. Now let me venture some Christian givens. The chief points I have made in this meandering introduction are three. Number one, how we approach death, including the medical service provided to those who are approaching death, is inevitably shaped in part by the worldview, the frames of reference we have consciously or unconsciously adopted. Number two, Owing not least to the mobility of cultures today, these worldviews are exceedingly diverse, often intersecting, and many people have adopted idiosyncratic snippets from competing and even mutually contradictory frames of reference. It's a very confused discourse field out there. Three, Christians too have an urgent need to come to terms with the givens of Scripture in their own tradition that bear on death and die. And that is what the rest of this talk attempts to do. Let me provide three warnings. Number one, this is far from being an exhaustive list. Biblical theology is so intertwined that it is hard to think of any biblical theological truth that is not tied to the way we think of death. The tangled skine takes us through complicated arguments so that you can get back to deathbeds in one fashion or another. My list of eight items is irresponsibly personal, selective, and short. Number two, these biblical theological truths must be taken and applied to matters of life and death together. For example, there is little value in erecting an entire edifice on, say, what the Bible says about the love of God. If in the foundation that we build, we have not also incorporated something about what the Bible says regarding the justice of God, or even the judgment of God, or the redemption of God, the way in which men and women are reconciled to God, to choose just one element is inevitably to introduce distortion. Number three, in teasing out some ways in which the following biblical theological truths have a bearing on bioethical issues, especially those surrounding death, I will avoid getting down into the weeds. One thinks of the excellent volume by Catherine Butler, Between Life and Death, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care, cast at a pretty popular level, or of some essays and other writing by Megan Best, a lot more technical, no less informed. To pick up on only one issue, John Steele Gordon has commented, I think we're overlapping again. Since ancient times, doctors have fought death with all the power at their disposal for as long as life remained. 
Today, the power to heal has become so mighty that we increasingly have the technical means to extend indefinitely the shadow while often not the substance of life. When doctors should cease their efforts and allow death to have its inevitable victory is an issue that will not soon be settled, but it cannot be much longer evaded. Or again, we will not interact with the essays in the second fascicle of volume 24 of Christian Bioethics, largely devoted to the thought of Paul Ramsey, partly because I am focusing on larger biblical theological givens that are overlooked, and partly because I don't know enough. So here we go. This is not much more than priming the pump. Number one, according to scripture, we're made in the image of God. Those of you who have done some reading in the area will know that people have argued for centuries about what is meant by image of God. Some have tied it to the use of language and then talk about gorillas who can manage up to 90 symbols. Or the communication system of systems of clever dolphins. Others have talked about our non-corporeality. As far as I can see, image of God language is meant in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 to be evocative. Evocative and developing. Elsewhere I wrote up how the first several chapters of Genesis tend to be not full-blown answers to almost anything, but evocative steps that are then fleshed out progressively as you read on and on in Scripture. For example, God says, let us make man in our image. You can argue, if you like, that this is a reference to the Holy Trinity. It is unusual to take it as a, an editorial plural, we, and still less likely is it to be a royal we. We are not amused. God is not Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. But on the other hand, it is premature to conclude that the full doctrine of the Trinity is already laid out there. On the other hand, progressively, as you work through Old Testament texts and then New Testament texts, you discover that God is not simplex. He is complex. The same God who introduces himself as weak and then revert to the first person singular. One must do something with such passages. And those texts, for example, where the angel of the Lord appears and is, is identified with God, even while distinguished from God. There are at least a dozen of such symbol-laden indexes in the first three chapters of Genesis that call us to seeing more as you keep reading in the Bible without wanting to claim that all of it is already the given. So also with image of God. It is part of a bigger piece in which Human beings are not only given unique dignity, but unique responsibilities. We are to become like God in all ways that human beings can be godish. That's what stands behind a lot of son of God language as well. Will you permit me to try an experiment that I have used elsewhere? If you've seen me use it elsewhere, forgive me. You men now, I'll come to the women in a moment. You men, how many of you are doing at this stage of your life what your fathers did at the same stage? Let me see your hands. Two, there may be three or four. One percent, two percent. You women, 
How many of you are doing at this stage of your life what your mothers were doing at the same stage? Let me see your hand. One, two. Whereas 150 years ago, let alone two centuries ago, if your father was a farmer, the chances were overwhelming that you would become a farmer. So you were not only identified by family name, but by family vocation. That's why Jesus is often referred to as the carpenter's son. In fact, once in Mark 6, he's called the carpenter. Presumably, the old man has died before Jesus enters public ministry. He takes over the family business. He's the carpenter. That's what he does. And out of this social reality emerges a lot of son of expressions. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's not telling you how you become a Christian. It's saying that God is the supreme peacemaker, and if you start making peace, you're acting godishly. You're showing yourself by your behavior to belong to the godish family. It's why in the Old Testament, although Son of God can refer metaphorically to all of Israel or to individual Israelites, it can refer in a peculiar way to the king of Israel, the king, the son of David. That is, God is the supreme king. And when the new Davidite comes to the throne, on that day, God says, today I have begotten you. Today you've become my son. Because this king is to act godishly in his reign. He's to rule with justice, preserve the covenant, urge the people to follow Yahweh, and so on and so on and so on. And because of that, the son of God language is picked up in a variety of ways in the New Testament, and it's ratcheted up in intensity as you get on until in the last vision of Scripture, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we're told there is no more sin or sorrow, no more death or decay. The individual Christian, it is said of him, he will be my son. That is, he'll be like God in all ways in which human beings, creatures, can be godish. All along the text it said, be holy, for I am holy. Be godish, for I am godish. Now that introduces us to a lot of other matters, but what it does mean is that we human beings are not just like souped-up hyenas or particularly gifted chimpanzees. There is something unique about our origins, our status, our relationship with God, and our destiny. Number two, sin. Of, of course, it's not easy to talk about these things in a purely secular environment, but I'm talking about what Christian insights into these sorts of questions force us to think about. Sin begins with a demonic question, has God said, and ends by portraying God as a cosmic party pooper. God knows that if you eat of that forbidden fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow, what grander temptation is there than that to become godish? But here it's at the expense of disobeying God. And this leads to the first cosmic layer of sinfulness in Scripture, namely idolatry. You, you see an awareness of this uh, nature of sin as more than just breaking a rule or two. In the matter of David's sin with Bathsheba, 
Everyone here will know the account. David seduces the woman next door, impregnates her, and then finally tries to hide his sin by arranging through the military to have her husband bumped off. Eventually, he's confronted and repents and writes what is in our Bible, Psalm 51. Amongst the things that God, that, that David says, and on this occasion is, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at one level, you want to say, what a joke. He sinned against Bathsheba. He seduced her. He sinned against Uriah. had him bumped off. Sinned against the military high command. He corrupted them. Sinned against his family. He betrayed them. Sinned against the nation. As the supreme magistrate, he should be upholding justice. In fact, it's pretty difficult to think of anybody that he didn't sin against. But he has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Because that's part of a frame of reference that controls all of Scripture. It's what makes sin, sin. If you cheat on your income tax, the most offended party is not Uncle Sam. It's God Almighty. You cheat on your spouse, the same thing holds true. It's what makes sin so God-awful. And that leads to the biblical pictures of transgression and enchainment, which brings us to number three, death and promise. I wish I had time to unpack what Augustine says about death, the different kinds of death. Death to God, what we call death today, physical death. Elsewhere, Paul can talk about death to sin. It's universality. It's link to sin itself, such that in one sense, we are not to think of death as the end of a natural life, such that the death itself is natural. Oh, at one purely set of physical categories, death is natural. In another sense, in a cosmic storytelling, it's grotesquely unnatural, which is why the Bible, even though it can view death as a portal to resurrection life, is always outraged by death. And somehow we are called to preserve that same active tension. That is, on the one hand, death is outrageous. It's the last enemy. It has to be destroyed. And Christ himself is set to destroy it, according to 1 Corinthians 15. On the other hand, it's the portal by which Paul the Apostle can say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. He, he, he does not count the sufferings of this life to be compared with the glories yet to come, so that we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. You hear the tension in it all the time. And when we are at deathbeds, either as medical practitioners or as friends or at our own deathbed, we ought to be preserving something of that tension if we're going to be faithful to Holy Scripture. Four, Jesus presented as God and human being. Hebrews 2 makes much of the point. Daniel 7 pictures one who receives a kingdom from the heavenly being. He appears as one like a son of man. It's a way of saying who appears like a human being. That's the way he appears. And of course, this has led to countless biblical texts. 
In the beginning was the word, God expressed himself. That self-expression was with God, God's own fellow. That self-expression was God, God's own self. And this word became flesh. How you work that out is not easy. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. There's Jesus on the back end of a boat having a snooze. Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, says, Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. But Jesus, when he's in Jericho, isn't in Jerusalem. He's located in a way in which God is not limited or located. How do you tie these things together? Well, I could fill your ears with theological discussion for the next hour and talk about the weight of two natures and one person and the importance of such confession in the history of the church. But we have to remember that God became a human being, and number five, Jesus dies. So that the Christian cannot long think about death without thinking about Jesus' death. A death that he could not have died had he not become a human being. And yet you want to say a little bit more than that it was just Jesus the man that died and not Jesus the God-man. Because Acts 20 makes it very clear that the author can go so far as to refer to God and the blood of God that redeems us from sin. That is shocking language. And so we read elsewhere, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We come in this death to the heart of endless intellectual, pastoral, theological challenge. Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus' death on the cross as the death, the suffering of the God-man. He's the king who reigns from the cross, which is simply grotesque in Roman thought. But Christians capitalized on it for the first three centuries of the Christian church. And behind that lay a whole slew of Christian ethical dimensions. We are to take up our cross and follow him. It's by dying that we live. It's by giving that we receive. And all of it traceable back to the God-man who dies in our place, that we might live. How can Christians talk about death and not think deeply about Christ's death on our behalf? Moreover, he rises for others. He not only dies for others, but he rises for others and remains forever the God-man. It's not as if he gave up his humanity when he returned to the Father's right hand. Number six, he grants to us eternal life. Christians can talk about this life, but the Bible insists that we may be granted eternal life now, and we anticipate resurrection life to come. This surely must have a bearing on how we see a dead body. Carly Eschleman in Claditas, a journal of Christian thought, writes, and yet when a cadaver's utility is separated from a person's right to respect, actions such as cannibalism can be defended as decent, even acceptable. But if we are always, always people destined for life after death and ultimately to resurrection existence, we inevitably must think of death itself in categories that are different from that of raw philosophical materialism. Number seven, 
salvation history. That is, over against philosophical naturalism, the Bible tells a story that includes supernatural elements. It's got a plot line. It's going somewhere. It's got a telos, an end. It's unlike Hinduism, where history goes round and round and round and round, and you jump on and jump off. That's called reincarnation. It's, it's unlike a steady state view of the universe. Rather, history itself tells a story that begins with creation and goes through what sin and the fall looks like and God's steps to redeem this broken humanity and the place of Israel and all of this and the coming of Jesus, and the fullness of time, and ultimately a culmination at the end of the age. It's, it's a story. There's a storyline that makes sense of the whole. So in other words, when we start thinking about what the Bible says about X, death, dying, or whatever, and abstract that little snippet from the storyline itself, we, we may be getting some insight somewhere along the line, but we have become picky. We have become selective. We have become interpreters of snippets rather than interpreters of events that themselves are part of a large storyline. That's what leads us to talk about the consummation, the return of Christ, such that Christians cannot properly reflect the New Testament without looking forward and saying, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. There is a consummation to come, a heaven and earth to be gained, and a hell to be shunned. That is just part of the given. You just have to read the Gospels themselves to see that you cannot abstract Jesus from those givens. And finally, what I'll call matters of relative weight. That is, the nature of the unfolding storyline establishes matters of relative weight. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Lay up, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode, where thieves dig through and steal. Lay up for yourselves rather treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. And then he adds, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is not saying be careless about things in this life. Elsewhere, the Bible instructs us to make sure that we provide for our families. Anyone who, who ignores the responsibility to provide for his family, Paul says, is worse than an infidel. It's, it's, it's not denying any such common sense obligations. But that last bit, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is stunningly penetrating. It is not saying, watch your heart, for out of it are the wellsprings of life. That's what Proverbs 4 says. Jesus says something different. He says, choose your treasure, because your heart will follow your treasure. What you value the most becomes God for you. So that means that when we think of treasures in the new heaven and the new earth as opposed to treasures here, that's going to shape our vision of life and death. It's, it's going to make sense of an apostle who can say, I reckon that the sufferings of this life are not to be compared with the glories yet to come. That makes no sense to a philosophical materialist. It's, it's ostrich-like, putting your head in the sand. In, in the New Testament, it's self-evident. And moreover, what does it profit anyone to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It has to do with identity, with the fact that Jesus reigns from the cross 
and calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. It explains why Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb. Some interpret his tears as as being really cut up because he's lost a friend. I think that interpretation is slightly bizarre because it's transparent. He knows that he's going to call Lazarus forth in about, forth in about three minutes. If he's weeping his eyes out because Lazarus is dead when he knows he's going to call him forth in about three minutes, it's nothing but crocodile tears. It's all show. No, 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 no. The tears, as the original shows, is he sees people weeping and crying at the tomb, and he's outraged by death. He's outraged by it. It is a reflection of so much loss and so much sorrow and so much pain. But death cannot stop him either. Lazarus, come forth! Some wag has said if he hadn't prefaced his command with Lazarus, every tomb within his hearing would have emptied. I close. I have not taken the time to turn over in detail how each of these eight points specifically impinges on our view of death and of dying. In part, that failure reflects choices I made because of the time constraints imposed on me. But in part, it was because I wanted you to see that where and how human beings fit into the Bible's biblical theological storyline establish the matrix, the frames of reference by which we are to think of death and dying. They are the frames of reference, the non-negotiable frames of reference established by Scripture, and they cannot be rightly cherry-picked or mushed together with alien structures. It's not so much what redemptive history, for example, picking one of the eight, teaches us about death and dying, as what redemptive history teaches us about human beings, the nature and enchaining power of sin and death, of what Christ has done to set us free, of eternal life and impending resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth. All of that then helps us to establish what Christians should think about death and dying. It's a frame of reference discussion rather than a simple straight line from one of the eight points to a particular image of death and dying. Well, thank you for your patience. I'll be around too to uh, chat for a while. That was Biblical and Theological Givens for Responsible Christian Thinking About Death, a plenary address by D.A. Carson, Ph.D., Emeritus Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, recorded at our 2019 Summer Conference. All of the audio from that 2019 conference, Taking Care, Perspectives for the End of Life, is now available to CBHD members as part of their premium content access. For more information about CBHD membership, visit cbhd.org slash subscribe or email membership at cbhd.org. And finally, please join us for next month's Bioethics and the Body Conference. To register, visit cbhd.org and click on Conference at the top of the page. Becoming a CBHD member provides a discount for the conference. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, 
has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. All post-production for the Bioethics Podcast is done by CBHD Communications and Marketing Manager, Annalise Troll. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.